This morning we are continuing our series on Colossians. Uh, we're looking at Colossians 2, 3, 4. And so this is a, a big chunk of scripture. I recognize it. Um, and last week we talked uh, with Paul. Oh, I'll talk with Paul. Last week Paul, he was encouraging the believers uh, to stay rooted in the treasure of Jesus. And we talked about how it was through prayer, community, and remembering where your faith has started. And so this section of scripture, he's really encouraging the believers to have eyes for Jesus, to take a look at him, to think about him, and to focus, about, to focus on him. Uh, and this just let me thinking about, you know what, that I still have eyes for my wife. She's amazing. She's beautiful. But we were t- having supper at someone's house on Friday. Okay, she needs my car keys. This is not part of the sermon. Um, anyways... Uh, <laughs> Uh, on Friday, I just about like they asked us when was the first time like you met? What's your story when you guys met and uh, fell in love? You know, did you look across the uh, aisle from somebody and you just like winked and that was it? And so, but God, thinking about that first time I met Kim and just those feelings that were there and how I just and I still have those feelings for her and I still look at her with such admiration and love and care. You know, even when she hasn't showered for three days. And so I'm glad she laughed when I said that. Um, but. There's still this, just this, I have eyes for my wife as much as, you know, as we go through life, I still focus my time and efforts on this relationship I have with her. And that more so goes with Christ. I focus on him. I remember being captivated by him. I remember that he still captivates me to this day. And so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive right into our scripture here. We're going to look at sections of this scripture, and we're going to touch on certain aspects of each section as we go through. Uh, I know it's a big portion, and I didn't know how much coffee you drank this morning and how long I could speak. And so uh, we're going to hope that we can do this in 30 minutes and then uh, that you have some truths that you can take with you uh, and apply through your week. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this day. We thank you that we can come into this space. And Lord, we can praise you, we can worship you, and we can hear your word. And I pray as we enter into this time, Lord, that our hearts are prepared. Lord, for what you have to say, Lord, that we can focus our eyes upon you, and Lord, recognizing the importance of always having eyes for you, Jesus. And so, Lord, I thank you for this time. We pray that you bless uh, this, um, this, this message that's going to bring prop forward. In your name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Colossians 2, uh, verses 8 to 12. This is the first section of Scripture we're going to work through. Here we go. If you have your phones, you can take, open your phone, open the Bible app. Here we go. Colossians 8 starts. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. I really want to look at that first uh, verse in this section. It says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. And the, use that, the word that they use for take captive is actually this word, 
Uh, Silagogon, and that's a fun word to say, and as most Greek words are, Silagogon is very close to the word synagogue. And so what, why would he use the word synagogue in this verse? Paul is warning the Colossians to not to be lured into the synagogue. And you're like, well, like, why would he not want them to do that? That's where they go to praise and to worship. And what's, let's think about our series in Galatians and what happened in the series in Galatians. There were Jewish zealots, and they had told the new converts that in becoming Christians, they had only got half of what they needed. And so they were now ought to do to complete the experience of coming into faith with Christ was to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. And so Colossae, where the Colossians were from, was famous. And just like in Galatia, it had a vast array of temples and superstitious practices. And so they had their own synagogues where if you wanted to have a God of better health, there was a synagogue for that. If you wanted to have a God of fertility, there was a God for that. If you wanted a God of prosperity, protection. And there was even a temple for the sewer God, which I mentioned in Galatians series, had to be a place where these guys were worshipped. Um, it's going to come. I'm pretty sure those were the sewer gods of the day. Um, and they are the Ninja Turtles, for those who don't know. And so, Paul, he's warning, you can change that picture, uh, is warning the Colossians to not even enter the synagogue. I think it died. Oh, I'm back. Okay. He, Paul was warning the Colossians to not even enter those synagogues, to not even step foot in those synagogues. Don't even think about going in, is what he's telling them. It will, in fact, it will drag you down to the level you were at before. And so now that the Messiah has come, he's saying, now that Jesus has come and he has been marked out by God through his death and resurrection as Israel's king and the world's true Lord, this form of Judaism that refuses to acknowledge him is no better than any other type of philosophy. So Paul explains more particularly why if you've already got Jesus, the Messiah, as your Lord, you don't need to be completed by any other system at all. So he is saying this, Paul is saying this, Colossians, not to be captivated by what you see in the synagogue or the philosophy of the world, but to be captivated by Jesus. And so this is what he's telling the world. And this is what we even see in our world. Our world is trying to take our focus off, off of Jesus. It's trying to take our eyes off of the one true God. It's trying to divert our our time away from Jesus and saying, this is better. And sometimes when we focus on something else, you know, we begin to think, is that, can we add that to my faith? And when we take our eyes off of Jesus and we look upon something else, we actually hinder ourselves from drawing close to Jesus. And so Paul is saying, don't be captivated by anything else, but let your captivation be upon Christ. Stay focused on him. Have eyes for Jesus. So few of us, we are unlikely to face as the Christians in Paul's time did, uh, a pressure to convert to Judaism. Even though that might be prevalent today, it, it, there's not the pressure that there was in Paul's time. So what are some of these religious um, and philosoph philosophical attractions in our world that are most likely to draw us, uh, maybe new Christians, maybe Christians uh, who have had faith for 30 years, away from the fulfillment that we already have with the king? One of those things can be legalism, and this draws us away from the fullness of Christ. Now I'll touch on this more as we continue on in this, this sermon, but I think at some moments we all battle a little bit of this. The enemy's like slight deceptive way of keeping us distant from Christ. And again, I'll touch more on what this looks like as we continue. 
There's a materialism that can enter into our world. You know, we can easily get caught up with the Okanagan way, what that means. And it can divert our time and our efforts and even our finances to that way of living. Nationalism. This is huge. And it's a political ideologically about national identity. It's a set of these policies, these prescriptions of for what the nationalists believe the government should do. And it's not drawn from the Bible. It draws political theory from the secular philosophy and their own version of history as well. And so we see that, you know, that the Lord wants this person in. And they will see the, a lot of politics. But you know what? The Lord, yes, he wants somebody in and he will direct. We trust in him in that. Then the prosperity. If you know Christ, you will prosper financially. And how you know Christ is there is if, you know, how big your bank account is. Paul describes what makes Christ so captivating in verses 9 to 12. Reminding us to have eyes for Christ and let the beauty of who Jesus is and what he has done and let that captivate us. And so that's why he's calling them to remember, if you remember last week, to remember that moment when you first came into relationship with him and remember how captivating that was and remember how you just fell deeply in love with him and have, now that you have only have eyes for him to remember that. To remember to keep your eyes upon Jesus. And so the question that we want to, uh, to really ask you, and I've been thinking about this week, is am I captivated by Jesus? Do I have eyes for Christ? There's many moments in Scripture where we see people captivated by Jesus or they're having eyes for Christ. Nicodemus, he was captivated by Jesus as the Lord confronted his religious past and his knowledge. The woman of Samaria was captivated by Jesus as he revealed he was all-knowing through their conversation. An adulterous woman was captivated by Jesus as his forgiveness removed her guilt and her shame. A blind man given sight was captivated by Jesus as his power and love was made known to him. 2 Peter 3.18 speaks of being captivated by him. Being captivated by him. Peter, his life was one of captivation. One with eyes on Christ. And we see this as he walks on water. Christ walks out and first they're afraid and they're worried and they're scared. And then they recognize it's Jesus and he's called out and Peter goes out. And he starts walking with his eyes on Jesus, captivated by what he can do. And then with his eyes upon him, able to do what Christ is doing. Are our eyes upon Christ? Are we captivated by him? Colossians, this section continues. We'll look at 2 verses 13 to 19. This is a big section here. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of of angels disqualify you. 
Such a person also goes into great detail about what they had seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Paul, he starts to go into this section of Scripture, and he gives the Colossians this beautiful reminder of the cross. Reminding them of the cross, reminding them of what the cross means, reminding them to focus upon the cross where Jesus was crucified. The Romans, they like to celebrate triumph. And so usually an army of a king, they would capture him, and he would be chained in a line, and they would walk through the city to show the spoils of war, and usually the king of that army was at the end of the line. So this was a practice that they did when they would go and they would defeat a nation or defeat a group, and they would take their leader, they would chain him to all of his people, and there would be a long line, and they would show the spoils of that triumph as they walked through Rome. And so when the Romans crucified Jesus, under the sign that said, King of the Jews, that's more or less what they thought they were doing. They were killing the king. They hadn't thought he was worth taking back to Rome, though. He hadn't, after all, had this huge army or a serious military revolution that was with him. But every crucifixion of a rebel king, even a strange one like Jesus, they thought, was this another symbolic triumph for Rome. And hence, in Jewish eyes, they thought this was another significant win for the pagans, for faith to be dead. So anyone looking at the cross of Jesus with this normal understanding of the first century world would think the rulers and authorities stripped him naked and celebrated a public triumph over him. Pretty embarrassing, pretty obvious defeat is what they're thinking. That's what they did to people. But now if we blink, maybe if we rub our eyes, maybe if you know, we slap our cheeks a little bit here, and we read verses 15 again, it says this, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. On the cross, Paul declares God was stripping the armor of the rulers and authorities, that God was actually the one embarrassing them that he was actually holding them up in public mockery. God was celebrating his triumph in that moment over the principalities and powers, the very powers that they thought it was the other way around. Paul, he never gets tired of relishing the glorious paradox of the cross. And God's weakness overcoming human strength, God's folly overcoming human wisdom, that's what it says in 1 Corinthians And here is the reality of what he is saying, is that all the authorities, the rulers, the principalities that might try to take over your life are included in the ones shamed by the triumph of God in the cross of Jesus. So those things that we feel that they are struggling, they they are really bringing us down, that they are really on top of us, we know that they have been defeated through the power of the cross. In particular, the handwriting that stood over against us has nothing more to say. The things that are over against us, it has no more authority. He cannot say anything against us. And this includes our sins. Sin does not control us. It might still trip us up, but it no longer defines us. In Scripture, it shares this sentiment with us. 
In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says, We are a new creation. We are built new. We are new in his image. John 3, 16 in Romans 8, 1 says, You are no longer condemned. There's no more condemnation upon you. Paul is reminding the Colossians of the cross and reminding the reader, us, of the cross. To reminding us to focus on the cross. To remind us to never take our eyes off the power of the cross. And when we struggle with life, when we remember what was defeated on that day. Because right after his text on the power of the cross, Paul then begins to talk about the law. Because what happened on the cross is that Jesus fulfilled the law. The law reminded us we are sinners and we sin. But now Jesus reminds us, reminds us that we are no longer defined by that sin. The old self, the person we were before conversion, was crucified with Christ. The body of sin, formerly a vehicle of sin, has been rendered now inoperative. He's encouraging them to remember that, to live in that, to live in the power of what happened on the cross. Here is the fullness that Christ has given us, that we are free to live a life to its fullest, free from the domination of sin. In a world that is seeking the full life, that is seeking something better, seeking that thing that's going to quench the thirst of their soul, believers are the ones who know that that full life is possible. We hold this glorious reminder with us. That the resurrection is not future, it's now. When we become part of the body of Christ, by the baptizing and identifying work of the Holy Spirit, we were baptized into the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are now with him, next to him. Thus, we have this resurrection life now. We need to allow this truth to saturate our beings so it will empower us to live honorably today. So it will empower us to live a life that when we walk outside of this space and people look at us, they recognize there's something different about this person. When we remember the fullness of the cross or what Christ did on the cross. Because if that truth doesn't resonate in our hearts, that truth of the cross doesn't resonate with us, we can then slip into legalism. And that's what Paul is showing here in this section. What the Colossians were facing were people who were calling them to still follow the Old Testament ways, to still follow the diet. You know, the dietary rules, they were sensitized God's people to purity. Don't eat this because this is not pure. And so it reminded them that God is the one who will keep them pure. Festivals, they're great feasts that taught various aspects of God's work throughout that time. New moons, it's not some sort of like trippy like thing that they did. It would mark the beginning of each month. A new moon, a new month. And sacrifices were made to consecrate this new moon time to Christ. And then the Sabbath, they displayed something of rest into which God was leading his people. They're not needed, Paul declares. They're like shadows now, those things. Cast by a solid object. And the solid object is what matters the most. Not the shadows. And that solid object being Jesus. He is our sustenance. The celebrations of the Jewish law look forward to him. But now they're, he's here, they simply aren't needed anymore. It isn't that those laws were bad. Simply that they were a shadow of things to come. We hear that a shadow of things to come. So for Christians, all foods are now pure. And all days belong to Jesus. Now, of course, 
dietary principles are a good idea. Like if you eat too many Twinkies, soon your fingers will look like Twinkies. Um, like we were talking about mac and cheese and then hot dogs the other day and we're like trying to decipher how this was a good meal. It's not a good meal. Like you know, my kids are like, this is, should be in our rotation. I was like, no, I don't want to put death in your rotation. Like it's like we should recognize that there's certain things that, you know, that we shouldn't eat. Christians... Yeah, we should, it's okay to have a diet. It's okay, you know what, to observe the Sabbath if we please. There's nothing wrong in those things. But they don't do what Jesus does. This is the big thing. They don't do what Jesus does. See, the flesh finds doing spiritual things difficult. See, in Matthew 26, 41 says, As the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. But the flesh has no problem with religious rules and regulation because it relies on us, relies on me. There's an authentic lore to legalism because everything is right there. And if I follow these things on my own, my own will and power, then I'll be okay in the eyes of Jesus. I just got to do these things and I'm going to be okay. And legalism can look like many things today. One way is that we put our own rules to God's law, and we treat them as divine. We add to it. You know, here's maybe the thing we're supposed to do, but then we build this massive hedge around it, and then that becomes, you know, a part of us, the things that we can't do. And this is the most common and deadly form of legalism. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees at this very point. He's saying, you teach human traditions as if they were the word of God. We have no right to heap up restrictions on people where he has no stated restriction. The heart of the Ten Commandments was formulated because God showed grace to the Israelites in redeeming them out of Israel's. That's where it started. It started with grace. Because there's effects that happen when we slip into legalism. We slip into judgmentalism. We look and we, which isn't our job. We're not called to judge. Another effect is joylessness. I heard this story of a missionary who was very Old Testament, thus saith the Lord type person, and he was, went to this old tribesman to share of the gospel, and he shared a lot of thou shall not, and thou shall not do this. And then the old tribesman looked at him and said this, being old and being Christian are the same. A bit miserable. Uniformity. We begin to dress the same and talk the same. Hashtag, this is how uh, cults begin. Um, and so, like, but what happens here is when we all look the same and we all sound the same and we all do the same thing is we are robbing the uniqueness of how God created us. We're robbing the gifts that he has given us for the body of Christ. We're robbing the personalities that the Christ has given us and we don't want to squash that. Legalism can lead to uniformity. Creating somebody one certain way. Then you have a certain faith. This limits us to self-righteousness. Because as we continue in our faith, we recognize there's, there's so much more to it. So much more that we don't even understand sometimes. When we stay at this spot of a surface faith, we keep it simple for us. We don't go deeper. Here are some signs that you might be legalistic. One, you get angry when others get grace. 
We see this in scripture with the workers in the vineyard. Some of them came at differing times, but they all got the same amount. And the person who started in the beginning was like, why did you give them the same that I got? We get angry when we see grace given. Two, you're constantly evaluating if you got a fair shake. We see the prodigal son, right? The son, one son stayed there with his dad through everything. Then the prodigal returns and they throw a party for him. And what now was the father still the sons again? And the one son's like, that's not fair. That's not fair. The third thing, maybe constantly compares himself to others. And this is seen when the Pharisees, he has his prayer and he says, thanking them that he is not like those other sinners. Comparing himself. I, I, you know what? I might not be okay, but I'm not like that guy. <laughs> Am I right? Come on. Maybe the fourth thing, you lack some joy. David reminds us that our blessing is in that our sins are forgiven. This is where our joy begins. That our sins have been separated from us. That we can see Jesus and now we are with him. And the fifth thing is feels like God is never happy with them. But the reality is this, that Jesus calls us his beloved. He calls us his loved ones. No matter what, there's a deep love of the Father for us. Well, then what are we to do, Jeremy? How do I live this life that honors God? This isn't a list that I'm going to give you coming up here that is like, you must do this. We don't want to make this legalistic. But when Christ came and he spoke, he said these certain commandments that he's looking for us as believers to do. And when I say this list, you're going to realize that this list is not going to be anything that you can do on your strength, but something that you do in partnership with Jesus. Because that's what it is. Jesus wants us to look to him to be just totally captivated by him. And when we are, we recognize, I need you, Jesus. This is what Jesus calls us to do. One, love one another. John 13, 34 to 35 says this, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Here is a, a new command that Jesus gives to his disciples. We are commanded to love one another. But how great is this love supposed to be? Like, how much love do I give out? Like, where's the level of love that I should be having? Because, you know, I don't want to max out my love. Um, we are to love one another just as Jesus loved us. The pretty high calling of love. That's not on our own. That's not something that we could do on our own. But we need Jesus. The second thing is to pray for your enemies. Matthew 5, to 45 says this, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecuted you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. This command is literally off the charts. And like, if we don't have the Holy Spirit, there's no way that we are able to accomplish this. The Romans could not have understood this at all. They say, my enemies must die, is what they said. They must be made a public mockery. But pray for your enemies. Not on our strength, but on his strength. Our eyes on Jesus, totally captivated by him. The third thing is to repent. These are all things that really, really recognize that we need Christ as we go through this. Matthew 4, 17 says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
You might not think of this as being a new commandment, but we see that it was from that time that Jesus began preaching. He would say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent was a big thing. Repentance is a big thing in our life. And repentance is us going to Jesus, saying, Lord, this is where I have maybe, or maybe, this is where I've screwed up. Being honest. Lord, I lay these things down at your feet. Forgive me. And he's like, thank you for coming. I'm going to separate that from you. For believe that Jesus is in the Father. John 14, 11 says, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the work themselves. Fifth thing, take up your cross and follow me. The sixth thing, go and make disciples. Matthew 28, 18 to 20 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is a direct imperative command, like that of a parent who is commanding their children to get out of the middle of the streets. There is no plan B. Jesus tells the disciples, and he tells us that we must go and do this. This is not, again, a thing on our own strength. And if we want to be legalistic about this, ask yourself, am I going and making disciples? But we don't want to be legalistic about this. We want to go to Jesus and realize that he is the one that helps us to go and make disciples. The seventh thing is to pray. Jesus is calling us to pray, commands us to pray, calls us to come to him. These are all things that speak of us Connecting to Christ. It's just a bit humming. I'm just going to wrap up here. Colossians 2, and with this last section of Scripture, Colossians 2, 20 to 3 to 4 says this. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, these rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. I just want to read uh, 3.1 again. So if you were raised to life with the king, search for the things that are above, where the king is seated at God's right hand. Think about the things that are above, not the things that belong on the earth. The question I've really wrestled with this week, the question that I've really thought about often as I was preparing this week, is how often do I think of earthly things over heavenly things? I wonder where you know, like our stresses come from. A lot of our stress today, right, comes from life situations, and we recognize that, and we're all working through life situations. And a lot of our stress recently comes from the events of what we're currently facing in the world. We recognize it's a stressful time. But I also wonder where our theology can change because we begin to think more about worldly things. And when we begin to think about worldly things a bit more, it begins to shape how we feel and how we think and our perception. 
And like, I know we can't be oblivious to things that are happening in our life, in our world. We need to focus on them. Like if Kim walks in and she's like, Jeremy, if we need to talk about finances, I'm like, sorry, Kim, that's not Jesus enough. Um, She's just to be like, well, that's something we need to talk about. What Paul is saying, what has happened here, is that when we accepted Christ, we have now seated with him at his right hand. We are now with Christ. But we are still here. We're still here. When we feel the tear of life here on earth, we have to ask ourselves this. Are we remembering that we're seated with Christ at his right hand? Are we thinking about heavenly things more? Are we focusing on Jesus more? Are our eyes on Jesus? Are we captivated with, by him? Or are the earthly things a bit more? And the good news is that if you belong to the Messiah, you already belong to that new world, that world with Christ. And one of the th- main things Paul longs for new Christians to realize is that what is already true of them is that they are in Christ. He's trying to remember, teach them, you are in Christ. You are in Christ. He is with you. Focus on God within you. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. I'm just going to close with this. And you can play softly as I just close. The Messiah and his people are so closely bound with one another. He lays it down as this basic principle. He says, what is true of him, what's true of Jesus, is true of us. I'm going to lay down a very simple truth. And it's hard to grasp sometimes because, you know, sometimes the things we all know and we hear, like when we tell Malachi to do something, he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And or Zion, he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know, I know. But the truth is they don't sometimes go and do that. I'm just really throwing my kids under the bus here. They might know, but you know, we forget. But simple truth, it's hard to see Christ if we aren't looking at Christ. The act of seeing depends the set of our minds, our mind. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things of the earth. If you were raised to life with the king, we are to search for the things that are above. Learn to think about the things that are above, not the things that belong to the present world of change and of decay. See, one aspect of our Christian maturity of growing in our faith, and certainly one of the road signs of, you know what, a route to Christian holiness of drawing close to Christ, is that we must grasp the truth that we died and our life is now hidden with the King. We are with Him. Once our mind grasps this, the heart and will will start to come on board. And once that happens, what lies, you know what, that we've heard, you know what, Christ comes, He separates us. Setting our minds on Christ is an act of our will. We set our minds on vacations or on, on buying certain objects. Or, you know what, for me, some, set my, wife on, my eyes on my beautiful wife. We can set our eyes on Christ. We have that ability to set our eyes on Christ. He's calling us, Paul. He's calling us, the readers, the Colossians, to have eyes for Jesus, to be totally captivated by him. Why don't we stand? I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are calling us to have eyes for you, to focus our eyes upon you. Lord, we don't want to slip into legalism. Lord, the things that you are calling us to do, the things that you commanded your followers to do, Lord, all depended on the Holy Spirit. 
all depending on being close to you because it recognizes this moment when we say that we are following you, Jesus, that we've laid down our life to you. Lord, and we need you in this life. So sometimes we wonder why we fall, why we falter. We recognize that happens still. But you call us, come set your eyes upon me. Come focus upon me. Come pray. Come love one another. Let me lavish my peace and my presence upon you. Some of us maybe are having this tough time with life. I know we are, we are there. I pray that as you leave this space, as you go throughout your week, you would remember this. Set my mind on the things of above. Set my mind upon Jesus. We recognize that there's such peace that comes with that. Because the decay of the world that we sometimes look at, it's burdensome. And we are to be that light within it. How can we do it without you setting our eyes upon you, Jesus? We thank you, Father, for this word. Pray that it would resonate in our hearts.